all of us have in life defining moments. Those moments in life where we know that after a certain moment or after a certain event, that life is just never going to be the same. Most of those, hopefully, are good moments. Maybe it's a graduation. Maybe it's a wedding. Maybe it's landing that dream job. Maybe it's the birth of a child. But you just know that after that event, after that day, life is going to be different. Some of those moments are not so good. Maybe it's losing a job. Maybe it's a death of someone close to you. Maybe it's a divorce. But all of us have, good and bad, these just defining moments in life where after that day, life is never going to be the same. I've had a few of those, and one of those took place on the Monday after Mother's Day in May 2004. Elise and I, my wife, we were both off work that day, and I was sitting in the living room reading or watching TV, something like that, and Lisa walked into the room, and I kind of glanced at her, and I could see just this, this glow about her. She came in, and she sat down on the couch right next to me, and as I looked at her, there was a little maybe happy tear in her eye, and she looked at me, and she said, Tim, we need to talk. Now, that is never a good way to start a conversation. I mean, who, I mean, honestly, who really needs to talk, right? I mean, nothing good begins by, we need to talk. So I kind of look over at her, afraid of what she's going to say, and the tears now are kind of rolling down her cheek, huge smile on her face, and she says, Tim, we're going to have a baby. Now, the right response for me would have been to kind of give a little fist bump, maybe to give her a big hug, give her a kiss, tell her, oh, this is so great. I've waited so long for us to start a family. That would have been the right response. It's not what I did. Instead, I just stared straight ahead in my living room, looking at the wall right in front of me, didn't even look at her. After a couple minutes, or maybe it was a couple weeks or months, I don't know when it was, Lisa finally spoke up, and she said, Tim, what are you thinking? Again, I've gotten a reprieve. I've got a second chance. I can come through this time. I'm not going to blow it. I could take her hand, caress it so softly, right? I could say, I love you. I could look deeply into her eyes and say, when we first started dating and I knew I loved you, I was looking forward to this day to start a family with you. I could have said that. I didn't. Instead, I just kept looking straight ahead at that wall, didn't look at her, and all I said in a very monotone voice was, Lisa, our lives are never going to be the same. <laughs> You're laughing because you have kids, right? And, and, and in the grand scheme of things, I was right. Our lives were never going to be the same, but I royally failed that defining moment as a husband. I've had some other ones, one professionally in ministry, one that just stands out maybe more than all the rest, happened that same year. I was working at a church, I was pastoring, and the service was over. It was a larger church, and this couple had been coming for maybe six or 12 months. They were coming, and they walked up to me, and I, I just kind of assumed they'd been kind of involved, knew them kind of by name. I just kind of assumed that they were married. They had, good or bad, they had that air about them that they were maybe, you know, married. And they walked up to me, and they said, Tim, we would like to know if you would be willing to marry us, you know, officiate our wedding. And that's always an honor when somebody, you know, wants to invite you in to their defining moment. 
And, and I said, sure, you know, I'd be happy to do that. And, and we agreed they'd come back later in the week, and, and, and we'd meet and we'd talk about it. So they came in a couple days later, and we met in my office, and they began to tell me a love story that seems destined to be a Hollywood movie. Their names, Chad and Stacy, they told me that they had been dating for nine years. For nine years. And the reason for the wait was not because the relationship had gone through the normal peaks and valleys, or they had broken up, or one wasn't sure, and are we, or shouldn't we, or will we? It was none of that kind of stuff. They both said from early on in their relationship, they knew they were the one for one another. They knew they wanted to get married. But the problem came from her family. Because you know if you're married, when you get married, you don't just get a spouse, right? You get a whole great big family. And for some of you, that might be a good thing. For a lot of us, in-laws, right? Take them, leave them. Her parents aren't here. Their story, their story, though, was just incredible. They had a problem, a big problem with her family, specifically her father. They began to tell me, and I can kind of see in, with Chad and Stacy, I can kind of see Stacy, the pain, even nine years, was still kind of raw, was still a little too real. And they began to tell me, and this is important to the story, Chad is an African-American, and Stacy is Caucasian. Never an issue for them. But it was a huge issue for her daddy. It was a big deal. He was, according to her, a horrible racist. He had said mean, horrible, really unspeakable things that just came out of ignorance and hate. He had even threatened early on in their relationship, if you keep dating him, I will disown you as my daughter. So they thought early on, maybe we should just elope. Maybe we'll do that. They thought, well, you know, we've got some close friends. We want them to be there. Maybe we'll just have a small wedding and we'll, and we'll just kind of do it ourselves. But what struck me so much as they told their story was Chad said, as soon as we started talking about that, I knew that was the wrong answer. He said, because I knew if, if I could just, no matter how long it took, if I could just show her dad how much I loved her, if I could just show her dad how well I would, che- I, I would treat her, that he would change, that he would turn around. Stacy wasn't so sure. But Chad said, if we don't wait, we're going to lose him forever. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited nine years. And this day, they sat in my office to tell me the waiting was over, that just recently, Stacy's father had come to Chad and had said, Chad, I'm sorry. I should have never said the things I said to you. And if you will forgive me, I would love for you to marry my daughter. And maybe, maybe if you will forgive me, I would love to one day call you my son. So I had the privilege a few months later of standing up front with Chad right next to me as Stacy's dad walked Stacy down the aisle presented symbolically and literally his daughter to Chad. It was an incredible moment. But what made it a defining moment for me, 
there, as I watched this and kind of heard their story, was really what Chad had done. Because I learned something from him that day about forgiveness that I don't think I'd ever seen in my life demonstrated before her dad even took a step. Before her dad said, I'm sorry. Before her dad tried to earn his forgiveness, Chad already in his heart had forgiven him. It didn't depend for a second on what he would do. Chad was already forgiving her dad. It was a powerful lesson for me. Today we're going to begin a new series that we're calling Forgive and Live. And over next, the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at one of the most powerful forces on the planet, forgiveness. Because it is, we all know this, it's really impossible to go through life without getting hurt. I mean, we've all been hurt. Some of us in this room in ways that are just beyond comprehension. Some of us in here have been hurt in ways that we've never shared with anyone because the hurt was so deep. And many of us, if we were just being honest today, we'd say, you know, the reason I got off track in life, the reason I kind of wandered away from God, or maybe the reason you've never come to God, you've never begun a relationship with him, maybe the reason you went into relationships or habits or addictions that you knew at the time weren't the right thing to do is because deep down you'd say, I was just trying to find a way to deal with the hurt. And unfortunately for some of us this morning, we've seen ourselves perpetuating that same hurt on others. That old saying, hurt people hurt people, we know that's true. And this morning, as we begin this series, as we kind of lay the foundation for where we're going over the next couple weeks, what I want you to see and what I believe God wants you to see is that there is a personal power and freedom in forgiveness. If you brought your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, not very far in. And basically what I want to do with our time left this morning is just simply tell you a story. You'll be very familiar with it when you get there. But what I want to do, and you can just kind of, if you want to go to Exodus 20 and just kind of put a bookmark there, we'll come there at the very end. I want to take you to really just one verse at the end of this message and I want to show you something that maybe you've never seen before. This, this verse, this story, is full of freedom and forgiveness and hope. It's powerful stuff. Our story begins with a nation, and really it just begins with a man, a man, Abraham, who God comes to, and many of you know this story. God comes to Abraham and says, I am going to build a great nation through you, which Sounds easy enough, except for the fact that Abraham was an old man. He was older than dirt. He had no kids, and his wife was barren. Besides that, it seemed an easy thing for God to do. But sure enough, God begins to move, and the miraculous takes place, and Abraham starts a family. And as the years and years and years go by, that family gets larger and larger and larger. And finally, his great-grandson Joseph takes the family to Egypt, where Joseph becomes second in command to Pharaoh. Basically, God gives a, problem to, uh, or a promise to Abraham, and just a few, maybe a hundred years later, one of those people that promise is the second most powerful man in the world. It seems very clear. God is moving, and God's going to fulfill his promise. Well, over time, Joseph dies, and this Pharaoh that Joseph was really close to 
this Pharaoh also dies. And the descendants of Abraham are now in Egypt, and they're just multiplying like rabbits. They're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. This small little family has now become really a small nation within a nation. And the Bible says that over time, a Pharaoh came along who did not know Joseph. He had heard about Joseph, but really the name was just kind of a name on a tombstone somewhere to this Pharaoh. And as Pharaoh looked over his whole kingdom, he realized that unless something happened, there were eventually going to be more Hebrews in Egypt than Egyptians in Egypt. So he made a decision to enslave the entire Hebrew people. And this enslavement goes on for generation after generation after generation. These people who had a promise from God were enslaved for 400 years. Don't rush by that too quickly. For 400 years, the Israelites, the Egyptians, or the Israelites, the Hebrews, were in Egyptian captivity. And understand, because I think often we read too much into the story, understand the Israelites reached a point in that 400 years where they really knew nothing about God. And for 400 years, God seemingly ignores the prayers and the cries of his people. In fact, imagine if you were there and you were a Hebrew slave. And one day you're out, you're digging a ditch or you're making a brick, whatever you're doing. And understand that this time, there is no Bible. There is no church. In fact, as we're going to find out later, you don't even know God's name. It's just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't even know his name. But you're out, and you're digging your ditch or doing whatever, and your friend next to you says, hey, do you even believe there's a God? You'd be tempted to say, I don't think so. I mean, after all, if there was really a God, we wouldn't be in this mess. I mean, all I know is this. I was a slave, my father was a slave, and my children will be slaves. We will live and die in slavery. One of your friends speaks up and says, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I think I do believe in God. In fact, I believe that Pharaoh is God. He, because Pharaoh is obviously the most powerful person on the planet. If there is a God, it must be Pharaoh. And if there's any other God, if there's this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he certainly isn't as powerful as Pharaoh. Because look around. Look around. Look around. You see, the dilemma that I think some of us have sometimes is that we pray on Monday and God hasn't answered by Wednesday or Thursday and we just assume God's forgotten us. That we pray in a week or two weeks, or a month, or maybe a year goes by, and you've prayed that prayer. Maybe you're looking for that job, or you're looking for that spouse, or you're looking for healing or restoration, and God hasn't answered, and you just think, well, God must not love me. God must not care about me. God must not be attentive to my needs. He must really not have a plan for me. But how wrong the Hebrews would have been if they would have looked at God and drawn conclusions about God by evaluating their circumstances. And see, I don't understand this, but for 400 years, I mean, let that sink in. Almost twice as long as there's been a United States of America. You think you've waited a long time. For 400 years, 
God just seemingly ignores the cries of his chosen people. And the temptation, again, when God takes so long to answer a prayer or to heal a hurt is to think the problem must be between you and him and that he must have kind of pushed you to the side and doesn't have a place, doesn't have a plan, doesn't have a purpose for you. Well, time goes by, and they were in captivity, and the Hebrews just continued to multiply like crazy. I I guess they had nothing else to do with their free time, but they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Pharaoh looks around, and he says, I've had enough. We've got to put an end to this because these Hebrews are going to just take over our country. So he comes up with just a horrible plan. He says, we are going to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. He tries to talk the Hebrew midwives into doing it, and they come up with a great excuse why they can't. And finally, he just sends in his executioners to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. In fact, they think what happened is they just, these executioners just walked into the small little Hebrews' homes, took the baby right from the mother's hands, and threw him into the Nile River. And God is silent. But it's at this moment where there's no real evidence of God's presence or God's activity that we begin to see that God is still in control. Because in the midst of this massacre, a baby is born to a Hebrew woman and she hides him just as long as she can and then as he gets to be a couple months old, she realizes he's getting too big. They're gonna notice he's here. His cries are gonna be too loud. So she does something that to me is unthinkable. She thinks, here's what I'll do. I'll place him in the river myself. She makes a little basket as best she can. She waterproofs it and she places her little baby in the basket, walks down to the river and lets him go. And you know the story. You've probably seen the movies. Eventually, that little basket ended up in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses, the Hebrew, grows up in the palace of Pharaoh. Moses is given the best education, any luxury you could ever imagine. But over time, he finally comes to the realization that he's different. He's not like all the Egyptians who are around him. In fact, as he looks out and he sees the Hebrew slaves, he thinks, I'm a lot more like them than I am the people here. And some indignation and angst kind of builds up within him. And he looks out one day and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating up and injuring a Hebrew slave. And he races down with all this emotion built up and he kills that taskmaster. Word quickly spreads, and Moses runs. He runs into the desert, and for 40 more years, God is silent. And another generation of Hebrews suffer and die in slavery. You see, that's just not the kind of God that I'd have written into the story. How about you? I mean, if my idea was to get people to love God, then I think I'd have just skipped over this part. Right? I mean, if I wanted to paint a picture of a God who was compatible with my thinking and my timetable and who meant my wants and my desires, then I wouldn't have written this part into the story. Yet Scripture says this is exactly what happened. So finally, 
after more than 400 years and 40 more years. Why 400 years? We don't know. Scripture really doesn't tell us. But after all this time and after all these people had lived and died in slavery, God finally decides to step onto the stage really for the first time of world events. And this is a kind of funny part of the story to me. It's just another day in the life of Moses. He's out tending his flock, and he sees in the distance a bush that is burning, but it's not burning up. And he does, he does the same thing that you would have done. He walks over to check it out. Never seen this before. He walks over to the bush. It's on fire. It's not burning up. And suddenly, the bush talks to Moses. 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 Moses looks over, and he walks to the bush, and suddenly, God himself is speaking to Moses from a burning bush. And God says, Moses, I want you to go back, and I want you to set my people free. I want you to go back to Egypt and deliver my people. And Moses has this long discussion with God, and you've got to read it. It's in the first few chapters of, of Exodus. But he has this long discussion. They kind of go back and forth, and it's really interesting because Moses gets to the part where he says, okay, hold on. Now, if I go back and tell them, let my people go, and they say to me, which would be a good, a good question, who sent you? Who are you with? What should I say? In other words, Moses says, God, we don't even know your name. I mean, God, all we know is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and quite frankly, that's not been very helpful. For over 400 years, we've been praying to a God we don't even know his name. If they say to me, who sent you, what should I say? What's your name? Who are you? You kind of feel the tension, the 400 years of tension that's kind of built up. They knew nothing of God. So God answers Moses, and God says, you go back and tell him, and I love this, he says, you tell him, I am sent you. It's not even good grammar, right? I am sent you. God said, I am who I am. Do you know what that meant? <laughs> that meant Moses I don't even need a name because I am the one, the only, the true, the living, sometimes silent, God. So Moses went back and he tells the Israelites and then he gets, a, he gets an, an, an audience with Pharaoh and he says, um, Pharaoh, I am, has sent you a message. And he says to you, O Pharaoh, who assumes to be God, to let my people go. And Pharaoh laughed, and the people mourned. But I think God smiled, because I think for an awfully long time, God had this date circled on the calendar, because he was about to move in an unexpected, powerful way. Now, of course, you know the story. Pharaoh said no, and Moses said, well, because of that, God is going to send plagues upon the nation, and Pharaoh said, that's fine. I don't even believe in your God. Give it a shot. So God sent plagues, and God sent plagues that were directed at each of the things the Egyptians held near and dear and sacred. They loved and worshipped the Nile River, so God turned it to blood. They loved and worshipped the sun, so God blotted out the sun. 
They loved and worshipped certain gods that appeared as cattle, so God killed all the cattle. This was my favorite. They actually worshipped a God that appeared as a frog. And God said, you like frogs? I'll give you frogs. And they were knee-deep in frogs. Everything they held near and dear, God simply made a mockery of. But still, Pharaoh, his heart was hardened. He continued to say no. So God said one more plague. He said, you destroyed all the firstborn of my people, the people I love, so I will destroy all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, including your son, Pharaoh, and all the firstborn cattle as well. So the 10th plague, the death angel would come, and on a given night, the death angel would move through the homes of the Egyptians and through the homes of the Israelites, and every firstborn among them would die. But there was an exception. God said, I'm going to make a provision for those who place their faith and their trust in me. God didn't say, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll only pass over the good Egyptians. I'll only pass over the good Israelites. God didn't say that because that's not what God's about as a God. In this 10th plague, this is so powerful, God revealed something about himself that the world had never seen, something they did not know. Right when God had the attention of all the people and really the known world, the most powerful nation on the planet, God revealed something about himself that people didn't know. Don't miss this. God revealed in that moment that he is a gracious, compassionate, merciful God. It was powerful because what happened was the night the death angel came, there were some homes who didn't suffer. And if you look inside those homes, you would see that there was nothing different about the people who suffered and about the people who, spared, who were spared. They had the same problems. They had made the same mistakes. They had committed the same sins. They had the same struggles, maybe the same addictions. They were exactly the same. The only difference between those who suffered and those who spared or who were spared was that those who were spared had placed their faith and their trust in God's provision. God told Moses, tell my people to kill a spotless lamb and just to simply take the blood from that lamb and kind of paint the door frame on the top and on the sides. And when the death angel comes, I will see those who've placed their trust in me and I'll pass over. Here's how scripture tells us it happened. We'll be in Exodus 12, 12 to 14. We'll put it up on the, on the screen for you. It says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And God in that moment, because he had the world's attention foreshadowed what would take place about 1,500 years later when his own son, Christ, would not just come to earth, but he would go to the cross. The blood that set the Israelites free was a foreshadowing of the blood that sets each and every one of us 
free today. And it wasn't for those who tried harder or knew more or didn't have certain sins. It was only for those who said, even in my mess, even in my filth, I'm going to trust you. And in that moment as slaves, the Israelites experienced the forgiveness and the grace and the love and the acceptance of a God in a way they'd never experienced before. And make sure you understand this. When God did this, when God offered grace, there were still no rules. Obey God made absolutely no sense. You see, here's what I want you to hear this morning. When God finally came onto the scene of kind of like world events, the first thing he did was to show that he was a powerful God. He sent the plagues. I'm powerful. You can trust me. The next thing he did was to show the people, to show us, I'm a gracious, kind, and compassionate God with with the Passover. He was saying, you can trust me. Before there were any rules, before there were any commandments, God offered grace. You see, that's always been the way God is. Grace is not a New Testament thing. It's a God thing. The God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And listen, what God is, I think, communicating to us through this story is what he's always told his people. You are accepted by me not based on whether or not you're a good person. Not based on whether or not you've cleaned up your life and you've put away those sins and those addictions and those struggles. That's not how I accept you. I've always accepted people solely based on my grace. Your acceptance by God is never based on your own effort as if you could try hard enough and achieve enough for God to say, okay, good, I'll accept you now. It's not the way it works. You see, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the law, to give to a people he had already redeemed for himself. God gave Moses the law to give to a people he had already led out out of slavery, to a people he had already provided for in the wilderness. The law was not given as a means to get into a relationship with God. God gave the law to a group of people, don't miss this, he had already established a relationship with. Now, most of you could probably recite some of the Ten Commandments. There may be a few of you who could recite all ten of them. But there may be some of you who have never read them or looked at them in in Scripture. Turn over to Exodus 20. We're not going to look at all of them. All I want to do is show you the preamble to the Ten Commandments. I want you to see what God does here. You've maybe never seen this before. Here's how it starts. It says, and God spoke all these words. Watch this. I am the Lord, your God. Did you see it? But God, we, we don't know what you're like. It's okay. But God, we, we don't know what the rules are. That's Okay. But God, we, 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 we still got kind of a mess here. We still got some sin and some, and some addictions and some problems. That's okay. I am the Lord, your God. It is a personal word. It is a relational word. God is saying, before you keep the first thou shalt and the first thou shalt not, you need to know, 
I am the Lord, your God. You are in. You see, I'm convinced that before God laid the foundations of the world, and he had you and me in mind, he knew he would create us. I'm convinced that God had a dilemma on, on, on his hands. That God knew that we would sin, so, and he knew we'd, we'd be far apart from him, so God had a, had, a, had a dilemma. It was basically this. Do I, as God, choose to be right? Do I stick to my guns? Do I tell them that I'm a holy God, which he is? Do I tell them that because of your sin and your sinfulness and even your current struggles and problems, because of all that, sin and sinful creatures have no place with me? Do I say that we'll forever be apart? Will I choose to be right? Or would God say, I don't think I'm going to strictly hold on to my right to be right. Instead, I'm going after you. I choose you. I'm going to chase after you. I will make a way for you to have a relationship with me and to spend eternity with me. And it's not based on anything you do. You can't earn this even if you try. And it's only because I love you and want to have a relationship with you. God, did he choose to be right? Or did he choose to have a relationship? Because really, in the grand scheme of things, it was hard to have both. And for us, a lot of times, that's how it comes to forgiveness with us, isn't it? You see, and we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, but people have hurt you. Some people maybe are still hurting you. And the hurt is real, and maybe it keeps you up at night. And the question for you is, are you going to choose to be right? Are you going to choose to write them off and say, you don't deserve this. You can never earn this. Are you going to write them off, tell them off, and push them to the side? Or instead, as much as it depends on you, are you say, yeah, I could choose to be right. But instead, I'm going to choose a relationship. Because it's usually an either-or choice. You choose to be right or have a relationship. Thank God for us. He chose a relationship. Last story I want to leave you with is this. Just to kind of illustrate how crazy God is about you. Listen, he loves you just as you are, as dirty and maybe some of the things that nobody else knows. And, and if, if you knew me how God knew me, then you wouldn't like me. God knows all those things, and he's crazy about you. I love this last story. Brennan Manning, he's an author, a pastor. He tells this story of an old Irish priest who's walking through his rural parish down a road, and it's kind of a lonely road, and he sees an old peasant man kneeling on the side of the road. He's praying. The priest is impressed. He walks down. He comes upon the man. The man finishes his prayers, and he looks at the man, and he says, you must be very close to God. The old peasant man lifts up his head and with a smile says, yes, he's very fond of me. Listen, God is very fond of you. He loves you. He's accepted you. All you got to do is receive what he's offered. Let's pray. Father, you're good. You are, <laughs> that, that doesn't even begin to describe it, doesn't even begin to tell the story. 
God, with, with all this junk, the ways that we've been hurt, the ways that we've hurt ourselves and the ways, Lord, that we know we've, we've wounded your heart, you still love us. You still call us to yourself. You've accepted us. We don't have to earn it. We can't. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for passing over us and our sinfulness and making a way for us to be with you, not just in eternity, but to experience you here and now. God, open our eyes to how we can show that same love to people who've hurt us. They might not always accept it, but God, help us to use that forgiveness you've given us and to forgive as you tell us just as you've forgiven us. Father, we love you. Walk with us this week. Help us to walk in the truth of your word and your forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen.